Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. This is your co-host Andy Fitzell alongside Steve Smith. Episode 39, part two of our series on Harry Hopman, Mr. Harry Hopman. Yeah, let's get rolling. Tennis history. Let's get rolling. Knowing Harry Hopman, who he was, what he accomplished, I really think that all goal-oriented tennis players should be students of the game and therefore know tennis history. Maybe just be a, an amateur historian, but know the game. Yeah. Going back in time, here's an example. Ask a group of kids here in the U.S. I did this the other day. What's a pop fly? <laughs> and they did. No idea. Baseball used to be part of the American fabric. It's not anymore. That's crazy. So pop fly, baseball's hit up in the air. Simple enough. And then you have a group of tennis kids. Put the rackets down by the fence, by the net. And then very easily you throw a ball up in the air and see if they can catch it. Then what yeah. you do, have a bit of fun, is you hit the balls up as high as a skyscraper. Mm -hmm. The one thing about baseball, when you're watching baseball practice... You know, because you don't want to have the the left field player, the center field player, right field. You don't want the, the three outfielders to collide. So the coach takes the fungo bag, hits a ball up in the air, and everybody just looks as if they, they can catch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But knowing a bit of baseball will make a coach tennis better. Hand-eye coordination. The, just, again, pressure of catching the pop flies we're sharing. Yeah. Um, with a pop fly, you know, what do you learn by watching a pop fly? Okay, what, do you, what do you learn by asking people about their grandparents? What do you learn by asking people about Harry Hopman? So much. So, so much. From part one, there's a little feedback, because obviously we have a week in between. Mm -hmm. uh, I think several comments, but one is we were thanked for just honoring his name and his life. Another coach said that he thinks every Australian tennis player has a bit of Harry Hopman in them. Mm -hmm. And then also, too, just the dreams to hear about you know, the hard driven principles. Another one is hard work rules the day. Yeah. Also from part one comments I made on Donald Trump, I was not going in the direction of uh, politics. Although I do think that the Minutemen should have been there in 59 seconds with, um, just point out here, what Harry Hopman shared about New Yorkers on national, t on a national TV show. So it's in part one of the series. Um, brashness tone, um, Brashness doesn't mean that it's 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 obnoxious. The story of two New Yorkers, pedestrians crossing the street and almost gets run over by a taxi cab. The, the pedestrian yells at the cab driver, you almost killed me. Yeah. And the cab driver says, and there's a little profanity going back for it. He yells back louder, no, I saved your life. <laughs> then the intensity continues. Uh, Hopman living in New York for a short period of time just expressed how he, he liked the the transparency, the, the New Yorkers, no hidden agenda, just telling you how they felt. Yeah. With um, friendship doesn't make the ball go over the net. Diplomacy is not really needed in tennis. Uh, Hotman, without really saying one word, um, there, there had to be no, no discussion, no explanation, just go. Mm -hmm. um, I'll go through uh, Matt Clore, who... Spends a lot of time here. Spent, spent a lot of time with us over the last 10 plus years. Uh, his father was here. His father worked for Ernie Clore. Mm -hmm. And Ernie said this, but this is in my notes. Uh, his father worked for Harry, right? Worked for Harry Hopman, yeah. yeah. Um, but Hopman would step on the court. Um, so you'd see a non-runner. He's patrolling the courts in his golf cart. And 
So again, he didn't have to be the New York, New Yorker where they're arguing like the pedestrian and the cab driver, but he would feed four tough balls and he would just make sure and feed the ball softly, but make sure that the kid didn't get a racket on any of the four. And then he would just walk off and the message was clear. <laughs> Footwork rules. Yeah. Uh, here's interesting. I, between part one and part two, one of my former students, Josh Scheinblatt, he plays at Citadel for Chuck Creasy. Chuck is a reputable, highly reputable coach who worked for Mr. Hopman. He was at Clemson for most of his career. I think Chuck's coached over 40 years now in college. Mm. There's just a few years where he did some work with a, a federation in Asia, then he did some work with some juniors. But character coach started with Hopman. With, so I asked my student, Josiah, I said, tell me a story that Hopman, I should say that Creasy tells about Hopman. He goes, well, he tells many. He goes, but here, my favorite one is when he was being interviewed by Mr. Hopman, he had to give a lesson to Mr. Hopman's wife, Lucy. And at the end of the lesson, Lucy offered Chuck $20 for the lesson. Mm -hmm. Chuck did not accept the money and was hired. Yeah. Chuck tells his players that he didn't want to work for Mr. Hopman for money. And it goes on where, you know, money should not be number one. It's people versus profit, passion versus profit. Basically, if he would have taken the $20, you would Yeah, so he, he doesn't know that, but it's in the notes that he, he tells a story that thought that maybe it was a test, and if he had accepted the money, that he would not even be given the job. Yeah. But he no doubt was influenced by Mr. Hopman. All his players, Chuck Creasy's players, they all have great mile time. The inside joke is his tennis teams uh, can show up on your campus, the opponent's campus, and take on the cross-country team. <laughs> I remember Chuck being on the cover of Tennis Week, the late Eugene Scott. It, it went from Tennis Week to Tennis Weekly. Mm. Chuck used to run what was called Hell Week. First week, he would just put the players through the through the grind, mm -hmm. and he wanted to say, you know, see who could make it. He used to tease and say, I want to have the players at the end of practice when they get in their car, they can't sit down. <laughs> the but the theory is, um, you know, if they could survive Hell Week, they could they could hang in there and be counted on in a tough match. Yeah. So similar to Bear Bryant, if our listeners have uh, heard of the. Uh, book, The Junction Boys, uh, the late, great Bear Bryant, the football coach. Hopman's camps were the same. Um, be tougher than tough. Tracking the Hopman influence, so someone like Creasy, he coached Jay Berger, who became a top 10 player in the world. Uh, Berger, for many, many years, had a lot to do with the USTA. But early in his career, he coached uh, Florida International University, and I've met some of the players when Jay was um, coaching FIU. And it just, that's the way it works. It goes from Hopman to Creasy to, to Jay Berger. Um, Mark Dixon played for Creasy. And Mark's father used to love to hit the backboard. So he'd come hit the backboard and he'd hang out and just watch his coach juniors. Uh, but I remember um, Mark had some problems with his knee. So instead of run, when all the players would run, Mark would have to hit the swimming pool. Uh, just going through the notes, Andy Brandy, I was working with Andy Brandy. Um, and then shortly after, we were working at All-American Sports, and then he was, Andy was working at uh, Harry Hobbins, and he was work, started working with Bonnie Gaduzak. She became a top 10 player in the world, mm -hmm. former gymnast. But just think about, you know, you're working within someone's game. That's uh, 
you can't always say, okay, we're going to start from scratch. Um, yeah. Christina Brandy, Joe Brandy, Joe Brandy coached uh, Pete Sampras when he won his first um, first Grand Slam, yeah. 1990 US Open. Yeah. But Christina Brandy, who became a world-class player, she spent time at Hopman's at Volatieri's. It's interesting uh, with, uh, she was at our place practicing one time. And I asked her coach if she would uh, put on an exhibition, hit some balls for the juniors. And he said, really? Because you would think, because Joe was taught by Will Van Horn as a kid to play, that she would have really refined skills. But um, a lot of positives, if someone can grow up in an environment, we mentioned that Boletari's was second. Boletari's was not the original boot camp here in West, West Florida. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of what wins, will or skill. You want to have both, but yeah, a long way down the road is will, will win. And if, if yeah. people can endure, you know, the, the camps put on like a Harry Hopman. Yeah. Targets, you know, hitting serves. Uh, Hopman used to put tennis ball cans on a court. Um, you know, the legend grows. I've heard only two players actually one, one was Peter McNamara, is you'd hit the can, and Mr. Hopman set the can back down. If he hit it again, very next ball, yeah, uh, he'd give you $1,000. So it was pretty tough to hit targets. Yeah. Mr. Hopman used to do this with, um, he'd get 10 $1 bills, two players playing, and five single bills in his left hand, five single bills, bills in his right hand, and as each person would make it on fourth there. So the person to his right, the, the dollar bill out of his right hand would go to his left hand and you would just play two points, two points serving mm -hmm. two and two. And then once the $10 were in one hand game over. So yeah. it's a pretty good way That's to uh, let people know would make it on four stairs. Yeah. But yeah, let's go with Ernie Clure. He was here. Um, his a granddaughter takes lessons with us. Um, Cami. He worked for Hopman from 1979 to 1982 um, with, um, he put out a little skit for us. Uh, so we had a little Q&A Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So Ernie brought one player on the court. He hobbled like the, the elder statesman. So <laughs> you have to figure, I, I go back to our original notes, at beginning notes, Hopman, he was in his 60s when he moved to the U.S., so when people were working for him in the 70s, he was not a spring chicken anymore. Yeah. But, again, the story of feeding four balls, stopping. And so um, if somebody would make a movie, so, and they should. Harry Hobbin, Ernie said he had his old blue head master racket mm -hmm. that was in his golf cart. <laughs> he, he, he guessed that they had 60 courts at Bardmore. I don't really know. That'd be interesting to find out. Obviously, it's been remodeled since. But just see a sea of tennis courts, and they'd actually rent courts elsewhere. And Ernie said that's what it was like on the 70s. And every court, of course, the ratio is four to one, but every court's going. Yeah. Ernie made some comments on live ball versus dead ball feeding, um, where Hopman, it was so much um, live ball. You know, the a line drill where we could point, that's a dead ball for our listeners who are newer to tennis. You just feed the ball and there's no interactive play. Yeah. Someone just hits it and goes to the end of the line. Yeah. 
Ernie said that Hopman used to always say, no ball ever comes to you perfectly. And I think that's where you're working with players that are down the road, more experienced players. That would be the opposite of, say, one of two of our other pillars, uh, Vic Braden and Welby Van Horn. They wanted the ball fed just right when you're trying to get a kid going with solid technique. Yeah. So, yeah, beginners feed perfectly, but not when they get down the road. Um, so you strict, no nonsense. Um, again, coming from Ernie, four-to-one ratio. Usually one player picking up balls, the other three hitting, did a lot of two-on-ones. Mm. He talked about being paid $200 a week. Um, and some, you know, the players were fined. He said at the times it was up to $5 a ball. <laughs> so, you know, every time you would start, you'd take a basket of balls, you'd count how many balls in your basket. So if you had a basket with 90. Yeah. And back in those days, it was just the one single hopper. Yeah. Um, I think my wife would have liked him. With <laughs> Paul McNamee, he confirmed, he goes, that guy would hit the ball eight hours in a row. Uh, feeding his fitness. Um, he, I asked him about Mary Carrillo being the only uh, female, and he said that he thought he wasn't sure. We thought maybe Michelle De Palmer, but I think I would have guessed that Michelle De Palmer um, ended up because of her uh, father being one of the founders that was teaching at Politeries. Uh, mm-hmm. With then going back to McEnroe. Um, People need to realize, too, that McEnroe, um, it wasn't just that he all of a sudden was told at the age of 11, 12, when Mr. Hopman started teaching, you know, in his neighborhood, Port Washington, but McEnroe was a ball boy. So he knew the story of all these great Aussies mm. um, because he he learned to play tennis in Douglastown, but he spent a lot of time, obviously, at, at Forest Hills. So just to know the legend of Hopman and his players. Mm. With, um, yeah. Bob Brett passed away, passed away this year. He was born in 53. <clears throat> started working for Hopman at, at age 26. Um, you know, you could do some research on the internet about uh, Bob Brett and Harry Hopman. People said that, uh, you know, Hopman had no children, but that would, Brett was like a son to him. Players do move on. You think of college tennis or junior tennis, there's a time span to it. The time span of someone coaching the game is obviously longer. Mm. With, I think of Robbie Seguzo. Robbie Seguzo beat Connors at Wimbledon. And he said that Bob, Bob Brett gave him a great tip, which said, don't make Jimmy run. Hit right at him. Yeah. Because his footwork was a weapon. Yeah. So I, I know in the industry, Hopman was known as, and people don't think this is a very kind word. He's just a driller, you know, a mm-hmm. drill sergeant, drill tennis balls, mm-hmm. do tennis drills. Um, I don't think that was fair by any means. But if you read like Paul McNamee's book, uh, Game Changer, that people would call Mr. Hopman and ask him for tips, such as the one that Brett gave uh, Robbie Seguzo. Yeah. Uh, some some thoughts from Bob Brett based on his apprenticeship with Mr. Hopman. People need to get to the ball. So you need to run. Mm-hmm. Always be stretching a player. And there's an art to that. Yeah. Just push him a little bit further, a little bit further. 
Um, physical stress, you know, that's how you make people mentally tough. They endure physical stress day in and day out. Um, I saw a player, not to mention any other name, any names, but you know, he was told, "Hey, it's not your night." But based on some circumstances, you got to do the dishes, and the head goes down. <laughs> it's like, no, you got to be a little tougher than that. Yeah, pain tolerance. You know, all this is from Bob Brett. All the talk in the world. Uh, will not create pain tolerance. You know, people just yap and yap on a tennis court. Um, I think initially, a tool of persuasion, there's a lot of verbiage, you know, make you say a videotape for a first-time player. Mm. Stroke production, strategy, keep everything as simple as possible. You know, he, Bob Brett, there's a clip on the internet where he's talking about um, being paid $200 a week and he figured out that he was being paid five, six dollars an hour. It's a great story. He asked Mr. Hopman, "What would I have to do to make more money? Work more hours?" And Hopman just said, "Nothing." <laughs> yeah, it was just two hundred dollars. So he realized that. Well, I'm just going to not ask about money again. Yeah. Um, some quotes from Mr. Hopman: um, "The lad." should be thinking about winning the next point instead of grousing over the point he just lost. Yeah. Whatever you do, remember to pressure your opponent. Got to have great feet first and great hands second. Mm. Little changes make big differences. Be able to adapt. Uh, like Tilden, you always change a winning game. You never change. Let me just say that correct. You never change a winning game. You always change a losing game. Yeah. Make a player an athlete first. Fitness will allow you to stay in the rally longer. You know, you hear the term shot tolerance. Mm -hmm. If you can tolerate long, tough, grueling workouts. Uh, another Hopman, breaking someone down physically is the same as breaking them down mentally. Mm. You know, you put you know someone through a really difficult workout, they do generally break down mentally before they break down physically. Yeah. You know, it's like the Marines, the, uh, you know, there's so many scenes that the Marines have. So we were talking about one of the advantages to doing some long distance running is just that, you know, cause you're the, the devil on your shoulders going, eh, your knee hurts a little bit. Just that's good. It's enough. Quit. No, we had some but, kids today doing the, Jack Kramer, five, just five rounds, three minutes of skipping rope. Yeah. In between, shadow swing your weakest stroke. And one of the kids blurts out, can we do this in the shade? <laughs> so yep. um, it's pretty interesting. Hopman, <laughs> overcome difficulties, become stronger, hit hard, deep, and mostly cross court. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's like a Bjorn Borg's old thing. Well, I hit the ball cross court and sometimes down the middle or was it down the middle and sometimes cross Braden court? used to say that for a hundred thousand yeah. dollars a week he yeah. hits uh deep and down the middle yeah. sometimes cross, cross court. court yeah <laughs> so on the internet there's not many uh many clips but you can actually watch some stroke reviews and you know he's loose on the serve shadow swing movement for strokes um and but there's all there's always movement um with common sense prevails when you're told short, simple, compact swing, take it as early as possible, a lot of things will go right. Yeah. 
you know, if you, you this is a, a, an Australian, a, a Harry Hopman drill, stand inside the baseline and play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to be inside the baseline. So you have to do the Ken Rosal. You got to play it on the rise. Yeah. And you can't um, have a bunch of moving parts. Yeah. So it's just like extra moving parts. You know, hitting against the backboard. We've got a girl visiting here and she has a very uh, inefficient forehand. And I just had her say, okay, hit against the wall. Yeah. Start off slowly, loose it. It's just forehands only. We've got a square and I hit in the square. I was just go faster and faster and faster. Then, um, you know, then make it simple. Ready position, turn like a volley, make a circle. That's yeah. it. I was just talking about Agassi's strokes, you know, yesterday in a video. Watching him play against Pete Sampras 20 years ago. And so compact, you know, one of the best ground strokers ever. Best returners as well. One thing about Hopman, too many pros today, they're making money and they're never stepping on the court. You got to appreciate... Mr. Hopman, you know, he patrolled the courts. He worked on the day he died. Yeah. Uh, too many pros putting their own twist on things. Like, okay, this is, you know, my two cents. How's it go? It makes no sense for everybody putting their own two cents. The old Aussie coaches, yes, yeah. lots of profanity, but lots of straightforward uh, truth. No sugarcoating. Uh, the with Hopman, the bite was first was bigger than the bark. Um, so he, you know, people talk about it where he, you know, he would tell you like it is, but it, it was quieter intensities because he he ruled with uh, the bite versus the bark. Yeah, you know, that's one thing too with physical fitness when your players are gasping, you know, sucking for air. That's when you can whisper, guys, this is what you need to do next. <laughs> Lots of his training sessions started with five-mile runs. There was times where he'd run a camp where he'd pick out the hardest worker and a beer. Yeah. You know, the hardest worker had a beer with him at the end, and everybody had to run 10 miles. Yeah. Um, I don't think he can do that today. Um, well, I think today, too, I think most people would complain about, oh, why do we need to do long-distance running? You know, that's not for tennis. And, you know, they would get into that side of it. Yeah, I know. Certainly, this has been mentioned on our podcast, but we have visitors come in and I say, okay, tell me about your tennis. And they, all these kids work with a physical trainer. Well, you may have the best physical trainer in the world, but you are out of shape. Yeah. You're out of shape. Um, the Vince Lombardi fatigue makes cowards of us all on running. If you can run five miles, you can run 10. If you can run 10, you can run all day. <laughs> uh, some people say you could, you could run a marathon. With what was famous with with Hopman was two on ones, so four on a court, one person picking up balls. So two on ones, you can have all three back. Keep in mind, look at the court. The players on the side, the coaches on the side of the ball, side of the court, putting the ball in play. People refer to that as shaggy balls. You've done that where you're traveling on the tour, and people just two players have a thirty minute court time and you're on the side of the court so they don't have to stop to pick a ball. So all three back, all three up. Most common would be um, two players at the net volleying, one player at the baseline. Yeah. And it's great for fitness. Now, the one thing with the players at the net, a lot of times they just end up standing still. So there's, it's not yeah. um, match simulated and they end up having a lot of downward play on their volleys. Yeah. But that was in the 70s and 80s, everybody was doing two-on-ones. 
where as soon as there's an error, another ball is put back in play. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think of Leighton Hewitt, hardworking Aussie. He was a throwback um, mm. you know, to the players from the 50s and 60s with his work ethic. But I remember being in Indy Wells one time where you know, what, he, what he did with two people picking balls up for him. Works. You, you could accomplish so much. You know, Jimmy Connors got to the point where he sometimes would just practice one hour full out. You know, then people would read that, and you know, a kid be eleven years old. Go, Mom, Jimmy only practices for an hour. Yeah. You know, Martina Hingis when she came on the scene, she's horseback riding, doing all these different things. And juniors would say they'd read, "Oh, see that she does all these different things." But um, they used to play all day when they were kids. I remember watching Layton. At the, uh, it was actually, I think, the Tennis Channel open in Las Vegas, just in the players' lounge before his match. He was off in the corner, headphones on, but he was just shadow swinging left and right, left and right, left and right, just shadow swinging, facing the facing the wall, basically. With Hopman, no one stops. Um, I think when you watch college tennis teams, not to knock them down, but a lot of times the music is playing. They're doing two-on-ones with the guys. The shirt yeah. shirts off. The intensity is just not there. Right. They're picking up their own balls. Um, with Hopman, I would say nothing. When he came to the court, he stepped on the court. It was, nothing was casual. It was like, let's go to work. Yeah. Um, you can do it where you're doing a two-on-one where a player has to, you know, they tag up to the service line then move back in. So just to try to avoid the the pitfall of having players stand in one place. Right. A couple comments on Jim Curry. He's not a rich kid, Plant City. Uh, he first, you know, he tells the story. He was mowing lawns and saving money and uh, paid $50 to go to Hopman's. And then his mother, Linda, spoke to Harry. He was at Harry Hopman's first. He went there first and was with Bob Terry second. Mm-hmm. But Nick's place, Nick got to the point where he's given everybody a scholarship. And Nick has gone bankrupt a few times. IMG bailed him out. Uh, so because of that, because anybody, you know, Nick, anytime you'd see a player, he'd say, hey, you want a scholarship. And so they ended up having more players and better players. I remember uh, watching a, a story, a special something on Courier, where he would run was here three or six miles Several miles with a tire tied to him, you know, with a rope. And then he had a tire just behind him and he would run. So, yeah, sure I think that that's goes a, back to uh, his work ethic with Hopman, maybe starting. Well, actually, you know, it goes, yeah, there's connections there with, for sure. Uh, Pat Etchenberry. Pat Etchenberry, yeah. With one thing Borg used to do at the French Open, you know, he played it eight times, lost, he, he won it six. He only lost to one player. He lost to Panada twice at, mm. at the French. But on an off day, he'd go run 10 miles. What Courier did is he would actually, you know, win a five-set match, and then he'd run around the grounds. And a lot of times, then you get out of sight and stop running. But he did that really to intimidate Intimidation, people. Intimidation, yeah. Yep. With, yeah, so Nick, uh, <coughs> Nick Baltieri, you got to love bit Nick Baltieri, um, Married eight times, but only seven women. So it's, imagine it's going, you're the one. It's <laughs> going to work out this time, second time around. Uh, but there was a lot of backroom deals. I don't think that, you know, certainly to this day, that's not really the, the case uh, with Hopman's. Um, 
Hopman's is, uh, you think going back to the day geographically, at one point, you know, one is in Tampa, the other one's in Sarasota, other Tampa and Bradenton and Wesley Chapel. Uh, for our listeners, you know, those those locations are not too far apart from each other. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a, a number one player who certainly had a time with Mr. Hop and Jim Courier, so many. Yeah. This is a pearl. I love this one. Um, I didn't know this for the longest time. Maureen Conley from San Diego, American player. Little Mo, a lot mm-hmm. of kids play the Little Mo tournament, and they, yeah. don't, they don't even know who Maureen Conley is. Yeah, right. Um in 1953, she won all four majors. She was coached by Harry Hopman. He hired her for that year. Mm. She hired Mr. Hopman for that year. Yeah. Her story, she was coached by uh, Wilbur Folsom. Then uh, Eleanor Teach Tennant. Um, but yet, even though, and Folsom, the story is that, you know, he was at a park and he, he just felt that, uh, Maureen Conley was outgrowing his expertise, so he did the admiral thing and recommended that she work with Teach Tenet. But it is what uh, is written about that is what she hired Hopman just knowing that he was so demanding as far as physical fitness. Yeah. And that would be the difference maker. Um, so, you know, all the success with Australians, but uh, 1953, Coach Maureen Conley. Um, Pretty successful year. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Mr. Hopman. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start singing on these podcasts. That's pretty good. Why don't you do that again? Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. With, he didn't really have to advertise. You know, when you, when you have that type of success with the legends he worked with. Yeah. Where, and again, a lot of positive about Nick, but he was pretty much like, Barnum, Barnum and Bailey, you know, with the marketing, the circus. Mr. Hobbin was the Jack Lane of fitness. Jack Lane, for our listeners, mm. he was on TV as soon as the TV came <laughs> out. And he was the guy who could do a thousand push ups, you know, the Guinness Book of yeah. World Records, a thousand chin ups. Yeah. But he also, like Mr. Hobbin, small, five foot six. Um, he would get into but it, the, the juicing, right? Yeah. Later on, he did, right? Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, he, he was yeah. into fitness yeah. way ahead of his time. Yeah. But it was what's amazing is just basic exercises. Yeah. You know, it's it's incredible that the number of really productive exercises that one can do with their body. But just yeah. the good old-fashioned push-up, sit-up, chin-up. Yeah. That, that was really Jack Lane. Nothing fancy, little yeah. props, just yeah. basic exercises. Yeah. And and I think of uh, Mr. Robin, I think of Jack Jack Lalane. Um and that's a, that's again not to you know beat up on kids today or the coaches of kids, but that's why to talk about Mr. Hopman is a lot of young kids or parents are taking them here there for tennis tournaments and they can't do a push up. Yeah, they can't. I mean, I mean, they can't do. I mean, one quality push up. Yeah. Or pull up, or kangaroo hop, knee hop. Yeah, the work of Harry Hopman should not be forgotten. Guardians are a game; would be wise. 
to do more research and why he was so successful. Now, there are certain parts of this story, um, like say, for example, there was no pro tennis. There was no above money, above the table money. Yeah. Um, but there's people that are in their 60s now. So, you know, my time with Mr. Hopman, in some ways it was indirect, it was brief. But, you know, I think of Howard Moore, Alvaro, Alvaro Bentecourt, all the players. Mm. Um, I just think a federation would be wise to say, okay, this is what Hopman did. Yeah. Um, because I think so many times, you know, people are into self-promotion and like, this is a new and better idea. Mm. And it just yeah. becomes marketing 101 and people are, again, self-promotion, I think, just says it all. Yeah. With, um, well, I feel like they have to reinvent everything. Yeah, reinvent the wheel. Yeah. But hopefully, I've just been talking about Mr. Hopman that we've uh, formed a picture in our listeners' mind, um, and you just motivate. I'll talk a little bit about his books. Um, the, um, what do you think, Steve? Like the biggest takeaway? I mean, for coaches listening. You know, I hate to say like today's kids or whatever, um, but things are a little different. I mean, what's the biggest takeaway? How can you take what Harry did into today's world or into somebody's junior program or, you know, what would be like a few takeaways? I mean, I can tell you a story about Vicky Duval. Um, I only spent a short period of time with Vicky, but I coached her brother mm-hmm. and her, their uncle um, got some pre and post brother Cedric. So, her, her, yeah, her brother uh, spent time with Uncle Rudolph lives in Tampa, and um, so you know, he would be walking around shadow swinging. So on her own her own accord, she told her mom, "Hey, I yeah. would like to go see Steve and work on my serve." Yeah, but I remember telling Vicky, and "This is like eleven o'clock at night." I said, "Vicky, you don't have a running program." Then I heard the door open and shut and she went, went out for a run. But I think that's one is that, I mean, there, there's so many, but it's, you have to run. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the, the whole idea of just recording and, and beating your personal best of a mile, you know, a mile or a 400, whatever it may be, but at least a mile time. And we talked about that so much. Just do you know your mile time? Keep working on your, your mile time, your personal best, and something you can work towards, especially juniors, you know? We worked work with a young girl, and uh, today was her birthday. And she said, she said well, as a gift, um, yeah. I'm going to, uh, how's it go? Uh, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit not being nice to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, but so she played these two matches in practice. And two visiting players, she beat 6-0, But I looked around, I said, you know, we have a very small group here, but there's seven boys here that have a higher UTR than mm-hmm. yours. Or if they don't have a higher UTR, they have a winning record over you in practice. Yeah. And I said, what we need to do, if you want to play any of those guys, you're going to have to improve your mile time. Yeah. And then you say, okay, drop it by 10 seconds. You know, something that's realistic. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, people need to be pushed. You know, the the honesty, you know, you can't BS a stopwatch. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of running a mile and running long distance. It's like, okay, um, you know, doing 17s or running running lines. But, yeah. You know, speed. 
Yeah, just becoming an all-around athlete, right? So for people to try to implement that into their junior development programs, even just like, okay, everybody stop and do 10 kangaroo hops. I mean, just simple things like that yep. work well, you know? Mr. Hoffman was asked what happened in tennis, the tennis Australia, and his answer was the country became affluent and lost their hunger. Mm. Um, you know, I told uh, a father today with his two boys, um, right now the best tennis players are coming from, you know, yeah. I wouldn't say impoverished areas, but you know, they're not coming from country clubs. It's the you pride know, cycle. We've talked about that. Say it again? It's the pride cycle. <laughs> with elaborate. No, so you, you're doing well. And you're going like, oh, yeah, this is all me. It's, you know, I'm high and mighty. Things are going awesome. And then it takes something to humble you, right? Mm -hmm. And then, so then people are humble and they're like, all right, you know, I need some help. And, you know, so they'll, they'll be coachable or teachable again. And then they start doing well again. And then the same thing happens. They're like, oh, yeah, it's all me. And they get confident and too confident maybe. And, and, uh, but that's in life as well. It's tennis. But yeah, so it's a cycle that continues. So, I, uh, Got to stay humble, hardworking. Probably the longest time, consecutive weeks, four months, tennis Europe, four teens. Um, you just go through the draw. And the wealth, the players generally from the wealthier countries. Um, affluency, affluenza. Yeah. It's difficult to have uh, rich parents and hungry kids. Yeah, exactly. Rich, rich parents, poor kids. Yeah. So he felt like people stopped working. Um, but he never said tennis Australia went down because he left, but I do think that that was part of it. Granted, there was other factors, you know, again, it's the, the, the emphasis on Davis cup remained after Mr. Hopman left. Mm. But as he said, you know, you know, people were out, out, they're out for themselves first. That's a, that's a, you know, verbatim a statement he made. Yeah. Um, I think like a lot of places, people are becoming indoor people. The Aussies were, have always been known as outdoor people. Mm. Uh, somebody's name who comes up so fairly true. often. Uh, one of our students, a guy who was with us, he went to the two-year program in Tyler, Texas, and stayed on and continued his education, but he was with us for seven years, Craig Tiley. Um, <clears throat> actually, when he was a student of ours, he did a three-week uh, internship with Mr. Hopman. He did that in 1986. Uh, Hopman died in 85. But at that time, it still was referred to as Hopman. As Hopman's. Um, you know, he took over Craig Tiley as Australia. He was first the director of player development. So, in some ways, if you compare it to the 50s and 60s, that'd be like taking over the Boston Celtics, you know, after Bill Russell retired. Mm -hmm. we, what Russell do when. You know, 10 out of 12, I can't remember, but so, yeah. so many. Now he's a CEO, and you hear often that he's the best, Craig Tiley, the best tournament director in the world. Mm. Uh, the player development of, of Australia, like the player development in America, uh, that's questionable. There's so many factors. Um, the, 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 the four richest tennis countries in the world are the four Grand Slam countries. Yeah, And I look at that, they're pretty much like rich kids. The more money you have, uh, Jack Kramer was asked by the French at one time, we spend more money on tennis than anyone else. Why aren't we producing? Hmm. And Kramer said, um, the answer's in your question. Yeah. You're spending too much money. Hmm. 
with the books, uh, 1957. Um, I don't have a copy of this, Aces and Places. Mm -hmm. But 1975 and 1978, Lobbying in the Sun, um, and Harry Hopman's Winning Tennis Strategy, we touched upon that. Yeah. Previous podcast, they're the same book. Yeah, but they got Harry Hopman's name in it Different in '78. Yeah, but having his name in it, that's how you know well known he was. Um, get his title name, sell more books. Yeah. Some more Hopman quotes. Um, I really got tired of seeing the Americans getting all the trophies, drinking all the champagne, and getting all the pretty girls. <laughs> so he was motivating the boys. <laughs> Trophies, champagne, and girls. Davis Cup was not played for six years because of World War II. The U.S. won the Cup four consecutive years following the war. Um, you know, Jack Kramer and, and the boys. Um, but it was after that where the Australians really dominated. For doubles, you must remember one thing, that doubles is like a marriage. Nothing will destroy your union like the lack of communication. <laughs> we must be a winning machine to win Davis Cup. We touched upon this after tennis turned professional. The team life as we know it is over. Now it will be every man for himself. Mm. Um, the team life, serious training, solidarity was over when big money came into the game. I think a great way to end uh, the podcast would be the kangaroo jump. That's Mr. Oppman. Yeah. With Emerson, 300 today. Jim Burdick was one of our pillars. Late Jim Burdick, what a great coach. He was a huge fan of Mr. Hopman. You know, so he came before. He's older. Yeah. And I think any and every coach, I think of like the Lansdorp 20. Yeah. The Lansdorp 20 is a spinoff of what Hopman used to do. With He used to do very a drill very similar. Sure. With Lansdorp, he, he pounds the feeds very much like Mr. Hopman. Mr. Hopman obviously came first. Those two are always mentioned when it comes to feeding tennis balls. Mm -hmm. Harry Hopman, Robert Lansdorp. I mean, they just feed with different speeds and different spins. Mm. Um, with with Lansdorp, you just got to hit the ball deep over the service line, down line, cross court, and you got to get 20 in a row. And it's a real gasser. I mean, he's just, but you, you get to 17, you get to 18, you miss, you start again at zero. Yeah. yeah. But Verdict was just great. You know, a player would drop the racket. At a gym verdict practice, everybody dropped. Every every player had to drop the racket, and without even nothing even being said. Yeah, you know, initially when the early in his career, he had to blow his whistle and yell. But one player drops a racket, or one player just yells out, "I can't believe it!" Yeah, I think of one of uh, Mr. Hopman's players, uh, Neil Frazier. I think it was sixty-one where he won Wimbledon. I was watching him play the Grand Masters. He misses the shot and he yells out, "I can believe it! I can believe it!" Yeah. Humility was part of the, the production of, you know, what he instilled in his players. Uh, but Verdict would have people be doing kangaroo jumps. Just, you know, she'll, you'll show some body negative body language. Yeah. Um, Vandermeer as well, I mean, because Vandermeer learned so much tennis from uh, from Verdict. Well, that's what I mean. Like, in, in today's tennis world, just simple things like that. But I don't, you know... <laughs> how do you think they go over for most places if you were to do things like that mom i got shin splints yeah, mom exactly so i mean <laughs> that's a problem is you know there has to be an understanding between the parent and the coach and the player that you know you've always said it 
you know, PPP, parental permission for pounding. You you have to have that. Otherwise, you're going to get the, oh, I'm, uh, I don't want to go there. Let's go no, that's where you have to have kids when they come out, they fill out a goal sheet. And they say, I want to play Division One tennis. I, I mean, I can't tell how many kids write down, I want to be number one in the world. And that's that's the best goal to have. Well, I mean, we, dealt, we do tell people, um, I heard this from uh, Noah Rubin not too long ago. Um, and I know there's a coach in New York used to always say this. Yeah. My goal is to have no goals. Right. So I, I do think that you can be too wrapped up in you know, what your goal is and say, I simply want to get better. Yeah. Uh, Bill Harris to book Amazing Racers, one of the best, if not the best culture of sport in America right now. Yeah. With what he's done with cross-country teams in high school in central New York. You know, football teams will be running in place, knees up high, and the coach just goes, hit it. Yeah. You know, just belly flops, boom. Yeah. They don't cushion their fall. They just hit the ground. He does that with his cross-country team. Yeah. You know, his theme is Spartan and Stoic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... That's the way Hopman was. That's yeah. the way that that's that was the times. So, um, I think that's a, you know many places in Europe, uh, unlike say a country club in the U.S. where there's just you know the, the amenities, all these extras that you don't really need. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's a, yeah yeah bringing it back to junior program or player development programs have players fill out a goal sheet. And then you just go, hey, here's what your goal is. I, one of the funniest things that happened uh, here, we had a kid that was here for quite some time and then left, and, and he said, you know, yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I have this goal. I want to do that, but I just don't want to work that hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tennis players are like water. They seek their own level. Mm. Uh, but Hobbin was a gold standard, um, you know, definitely. with There's teaching and coaching. You know, I just, and we've talked about it with um, Charlie Hollis. Yeah. I, I think, for example, we'll talk about it with uh, you know, our our time with Vic Braden. Is Robert Lansdorf when he came into the Kramer Club, he inherited a lot of really good juniors yeah. with a really good base. Yeah, I do think that there's a lot to be said about you know the the Aussie coaches, the Aussie teachers that that fed Mr. Hopman the players. Um, that's where if if tennis teaching, say in this country, the U.S., if, if the coaches, okay, this is basic, ready position, turn, short, simple, compact, and we all were to get on the same page, be out of the same book, yeah, um, you know, tennis would go way up, you yeah. know, with, um, yeah, so tough to get people on the same page. No, I, I was just in some film. Uh, Dave Anderson was uh, interviewed on one of our podcasts, mm-hmm. and. I worked a handful of times for five minutes here and 10 minutes here, very, very little, just in visiting his place out in Dallas, Brookhaven. Mm-hmm. But Ashen Kruger, she won the Orange Bowl twice before she turned 18. So yeah. I think she won it at 16, 17, won the 18s. Yeah. But, you know, he, um, he has, you know, from her mom, that we, we can share this on uh, social media, you know, her hitting balls very basically hitting ball off a cone. Yeah. Shadow swinging and going, just going through, going through fundamentals. Yeah. And that's where, if, um, you know, if the great base is really, you know, it's more about going backwards and saying that the people who have gone before us instead of, well, I got this new idea. 
Yeah. I've I've got five secrets and I'm going to put them up online and get your credit card and yeah. give you those secrets after midnight. Secrets. Or by midnight. Secrets. And for the most part, people just, they have a hard time with seeing a forehand follow through in slow motion. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to because if you have a long hitting zone, we go out to the target and your upper arm lifts and you have a high finish and you hold your balance, people just aren't used to seeing that. And so they freak out, <laughs> literally. Well, there's certain things, uh, you know, we say lost arts, but some things that are dead, uh, check the checkpoints, Yeah, hold your balance. Yeah, because um, it's the happy, busy, good, right? It's, yeah. It's in, you, you well, it's, yeah. Slowing, slowing things down isn't, isn't going to keep them coming back all the time. I think the hype, um, you know, and again, Paul Terry's, you know, Nick would give people a lot of confidence. Maybe. They, yeah. um, but, Hop, you know, Hopman's was first. I and mean, here's the boot camp, squad training. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it did become a business model where even ad- adults would go through his program. Um, hey, this is how the pros train, and people wanted to find out. Um, you know, it is important to have, you know, Great fundamentals, but with uh, just, I think if we could just sum it up, the work ethic Mm. and, you know, bare bones, you know, the less you have, the more you have. Yeah. And um, no complaints, no excuses. So, I mean, for, if, for a parent listening or a coach, how would you, what, you know, what advice would you give? How do you instill work ethic? Well, you know, you don't want the tail wagging the dog. And anything that can be measured can be improved. Mm-hmm. You really need to have, you know, now everybody has a telephone in their pocket and there's a stopwatch. Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, just talk about the kangaroo jump, the frog jump to the net. Start at the baseline, it's 39 feet to the net. Mm-hmm. You know, you measure, you can measure an athlete physically by how well they jump. Yeah. So, I do think that you know you do have to have some meetings with parents. I do think that it's a matter of going through the assessment. You know, this is where you are technically. It's where you are tactically. Um, yeah, just for, for, sorry, just quickly, if you're listening, you know we have the player development assignment. It's a free course on our website, greatbasetennis.com, but it goes through the whole assessment process and the you know the analysis and everything that's involved. So if you want to check that out, you can. It's free. If people were to really study tennis, um, you know, I remember spending three days with uh, watching Jimmy Everett teach tennis. And a friend of mine set it up and um, he was a good player. And Claire, the youngest of the five kids, she had just won the 12 and under Orange Bowl. But, you know, the lessons were very, very inexpensive. You know, People really need to thank Nick Baltieri. You know, when uh, designer blue jeans came out, blue jeans used to just be blue jeans. Mm. You know, here in this country, it was just Wrangler blue jeans. <laughs> and then Levi's came out. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, blue jeans were expensive, and it became the status quo. Mm. Um, but coming back to private lessons, I don't really like private lessons. I rather give, uh, I tell people that the private lesson is really registered. It's regulated by the cash register. Mm-hmm. You know, people aren't going to drive 20 minutes to a tennis club 
to take a five minute lesson. Yeah. You know, I will say 12 five minute lessons or better. Yeah. Uh, an industry norm in this country is, well, if you want some attention, you have to take a private lesson. Yeah. Well, you can't really work on technique in, in the drills. Well, this is how you go about it. But Hopman was all about squad training. All about squad training. The private lesson, then kids get so much attention. Yeah. Dennis Vanderman, he didn't like the private lesson. You can show someone what to do in five minutes. Yeah. If you, if you teach tennis well, you have the eye, the analytical eye. It's a, okay, here's the flaw. Here's the cause. Here's the cure. Yeah. And now you got to go drill, drill, drill on your own. Yeah. The other it's, thing with squad training is they, they push each other, right? I mean, Boletari's had that. Obviously, Hopman. Um, but yeah, they, they push each other. Well, that's where if you study the Aussies on the men's side, uh, most recently you study, say, the Spaniards, but it's in the, the Swedes. It didn't happen with Borg. People thought Borg was a mystery, but when, when Wielander won the French, they had six guys in the top 10 at one time. Mm. Um, you know, so, if, you know, camaraderie to, to travel yeah. with one another. If he can do it, I can do it. Or if she, yeah, can the do it, the, I can the do expense it. too. Um, yeah, you know, there are still a lot of clubs in Europe where you know you 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 play for the club. You're proud to be part of that club. Yeah, yeah. and it's not a matter. Well, I'm going to bop and shop, and um, you know, actually, you know, there are coaches. Um, I think more the coaches that are paid salary, like say a school coach, that they cross the line. I think in tennis, it's it's just the opposite. You know, they're basically a commission-paid coach. Yeah. So if you like the lesson, you come back. Yeah. So then what happens is you start to kill the kid with kindness, and it's not really even coaching anymore. Yeah. So um, I just think, I mean, I worked at one academy training coaches. I, You know, you learn by traveling. The teacher generally learns more than the student. But the academy had a vocabulary list, just 50 key words. And... I think we could end by saying uh, respect hmm. with uh, Fred Yeah, do you want Fred to be Stalin. loved or do you want to be respected? Yeah, the, um, Natalia Sorkin, we interviewed her, and I, I mean, I've heard her say, uh, obviously this comes from generations before, but I've heard her say it, hate me now, thank me later. Yeah. And, you know, I tell parents all the time, if your kid really loves practice, it most likely is a lousy practice. <laughs> and. And, uh, you know, we said it earlier, misery enjoys company. So common sense, uh, tough love, go to work. Um, you, know, you know, it's like with labor, you know, labor, obviously, um, his two coaches, uh, Charlie Hollis and then Hopman, he saw Borg play for the first time. They said, what do you think? And he said, he's going to be great. He's got happy feet. Yeah. You know, we see people and it's like they're wearing moon boots. Yeah, I watched a, I watched a video for two minutes today. It was a junior match, twelve year old warming up, and it was like, you know, strokes. But then, but then it was just like flat footed. Um, and uh, yeah, we have a backboard, and it's got really a, an Australian name. We call our backboard Wally. And Wally, um, I ask kids all the time that visit. I go, where you're training? Do you have a backboard? And almost every time the answer is no. Mm -hmm. And that comes down to, you read about great tennis players, they all spend endless hours on a backboard. Yeah. And if there's any way the listeners, I always tell people, people come to visit us, they'll work on their tennis game, and I'll say, if you can, 
Yeah. You know, if you the uh, homeowners association, you know, if, you know, sometimes, you know, people live in a, a third floor apartment, they can't do it. But yeah. um, if you could build a backboard, there's so many great stories like Kevin Anderson, you know, you just, you know, yeah. Wozniacki. I mean, just Harry, uh, Jimmy Connors all winter long. That's all he could do is hit on a backboard. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's Hopman understood reps, you know, movement, fitness, mental toughness, no complaints, hit more balls. Yeah. And in live balls and the speed of balls coming at you. Um, but also to the basics, you know, there was no one up, one back doubles and it was come <laughs> in and, you know, granted he was teaching an era where three of the four grand slams were on grass. Right. And by the second week, famous at Wimbledon where they didn't have the money to, have an army of people pull the tarp over the grass and people by the second week are wearing spikes. So yeah, yeah. there's uh, all sorts of circumstances on, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, the book outliers, the story of circumstance. Yeah. And, um, but even though there are so many things um, like, you know, just, you know, the, the Aussies, um, you know, this love of country, love of wearing the green and gold and playing for a Davis cup. Mm. Uh, there's so many reasons that they were great, and there's so many reasons that, you know, Tennis Australia is not going to match what they did in the 50s and 60s. Tennis is now global, Yeah, you know, when it became an Olympic sport. But at the same time, to just go back and, you know, same thing in our country, is that if we want to produce more players, we should have an understanding of what Harry Hobbin stood for. Yeah. All right, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed part two of our series on Mr. Harry Hopman. If yeah, you missed, If you've missed the yeah. part one, go back and listen to that. A lot of history, a lot of great insights. If you have a chance, leave us a, uh, leave us a rating and a review on Apple, Apple uh, Podcasts. That'd be great. And until next time. Yeah, and I hope a couple of our comments have helped somebody put together a, a fitness and footwork yeah. program. For sure. Yeah, thanks again. Bye, everybody. Thanks. See you in the next one.